Hello and welcome to the Raptors show on the Sportsnet Radio Network, presented by Coors Light. Go from full time to game time. Coors Light, made to chill. Make sure you find the Raptors show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. And please rate and interview the show. I'm your host, Lynn Lou, joined today by co host Blake Murphy, who is in Alex Wong's seat. Uh, Blake, how you doing, man? You all right? Yeah, I'm all right. We're we're shaking things up a little bit today. Uh, try to do something else, spacing wise, personnel wise. Basically, we're doing what the Raptors probably need to do tonight against the Pacers, and it's uh, do something different. Not that for us it hasn't been working, but you know, after that Raptors game, I thought, you know what? Wait, first hour today, why don't we bring in Vivek Jacob and yeah. talk about something more positive, like India and the Cricket World Cup or oh. Canada soccer? Oh. <laughs> Wow, you're going to do me like that right <laughs> off the bat? Yeah. Oh, man. What's okay. up, What's up <laughs> Well, it's good to be here. Yeah. I mean, I will tell you this. The Raptors have been starting out games the way I look at 4 a.m. to wake up for these cricket games. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been rough if yeah. we want to get right into it. Yeah, we can get right into it. Um, oh. Look, last night they lost 126-107 to the Orlando Magic. They are not mathematically eliminated from the in-season tournament, but they are... No, in all likelihood, toast. Uh, they would have to win the next two in-season tournament games by like 100 points and get some favors elsewhere. It was real bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take the in-season tournament part of it aside, it was still really bad, I think, because this is a Magic team that, as we teed up, is pretty similar to the Raptors in terms of philosophy and how they've built the roster and place in the standings. You know, both these teams probably think that they could be a play-in team, maybe even get to that sixth seed and avoid the play-in. And the Magic showed us yesterday that even down two starters in Markel Fultz and Wendell Carter Jr., they are deeper than the Raptors. And maybe they're not further along by the end of the season, but right now they're playing much better basketball than the Raptors. Uh, Will, is the poor start top of mind for you as well like it is for V? Yeah, it's unacceptable how they played last night. I, I think I said that maybe eight times on the podcast between sarcastic comments about how poorly they played, but like, Look, you, you have it in notes here. They, they've been down 16-plus in seven of their last nine games. Mm-hmm. And when you watch the game last night, okay, the starters came out a little bit flat. There was a lot of transition opportunities for Orlando, and you got to credit to them. They played really hungry. They played great. But where's that response coming from? Um, how much the, the bottom just fell out when the bench came in? Like, the bench does not. Like the bench most will keep things going the way they are. But there is no time at all this season when the bench has come in and picked up the starters. In this case, they dropped the ball once again. And, you know, the rest of the way, there was just nobody really trying to pick up the Raptors and, and bring them back. And, yeah, but back, I don't know, man. How do you explain the slow starts? Yeah, I mean, just to give you some numbers off the top, the last nine games, the Raptors are 25th in net rating in the first quarter. They're mm-hmm. 29th in net rating in the second quarter. So for the first half, they're 29th overall uh, in the first I- half. I honestly <laughs> can't believe there's a team worse than them in the second quarter. Like they have a oh, minus. The Pistons are still in the league. To they be have clear. a minus 14 net rating in the second quarter for the whole season, though. Like, yeah, I guess the Pistons and Wizards exist to make sure that you're 29th and everything. Yeah, and so I think for me, when I look at the starts, there is definitely a lack of intensity. When you look at Jalen Suggs, just like second possession of the game, yeah, he gets the ball off a of make and then just pushes the ball down the court and gets a layup. Mm. Like, how are you giving that up off a of make? Yeah. And and then that was just the theme of the first quarter, right? Like just pushing the pace, pushing the pace. The Raptors not being able to keep up. You saw sloppy turnovers. I think that's another thing that's really frustrating where you see these really unforced turnovers and it's simple passes, just side-to-side action where it's like, how are you giving the ball away on those? And so when you looked at this game coming in, yeah, you, you looked at two teams that are really good defensively, but they're also both really bad offensively. And so for the Raptors to give up 100 points through three quarters to a Magic team that has struggled that much offensively, 
uh, that generally doesn't shoot the ball well from the outside. That's where I think a lot of the frustration comes in. And to tie these two points together, so, Will, you say the start is unacceptable. V, you point out the sloppiness and the turnovers. Well, I think those two things go hand in hand because not only were they turning the ball over a lot and, you know, when they did make a shot, letting things like the Suggs kind of one-man fast break happen, but they were incredibly effortless and inattentive getting back after they turned the ball over. The Magic had 31 points off of turnovers. They were they had topped their season high and fast break points before the end of the third quarter. Mm-hmm. Like this is a magic team. Yeah. I understand they have athletes. They run well. When you see Jalen Suggs like that, you're like, wow, this guy, like this guy could be a one man transition team. They don't play like that. Yeah. They were yeah. not a good transition offense coming into this game. The Raptors were blowing them away in average fast break points, even though the Raptors get fewer forced turnovers and defensive rebounds. This is not a team that should be outrunning the Raptors. The Raptors need the transition game both ways to be effective because their half court stuff just isn't good enough. And they got embarrassed at 31 points off of turnovers. Mm-hmm. When you beat your season high and fast break points before the third quarter is up, like, I, I don't know, like, that is not a, what is your scheme in transition defense? What are your principles? Who are you picking up? That is a, you guys gave up on a lot of these plays, right? Yeah. I, I think that's the thing that's so funny because, you know, sometimes I feel ridiculous coming to the, the office, you know, every day to talk about this team for two hours and you break down the minutiae and we'll do that, you know, plenty today as well. But you look at the bigger picture and it's like half the time you're just like, yeah, they didn't really show up in the same way that they need to for themselves. They need to, to win and they need to, to compete. And yeah, I mean, you could talk about the tactics, but they just didn't show up. And, um, you know, I think what's even funnier it, besides the transition is Raptors having to go to a zone to start the second quarter just to stop dribble penetration. And literally the first place they went to a zone, the Magic got a lob for a dunk. And that happened like three times in yeah, the second quarter. that was the Jonathan Isaac one? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, he just came crashing in from the right wing. Yeah. Noted offensive superstar and zone buster, Jonathan <laughs> Isaac. No, seriously, like the Magic should have very similar issues to the Raptors, but they and look they like do. two entirely every game except for last night. They look yeah. like two entirely different teams, yeah. though. And where does that really come down to? It's just like you know, the Raptors came in with like just nothing. Those blah. And I, yeah, I don't know how you really change that. I mean, maybe you, you have to look at you know changing the starting lineup uh, to get yourself into a better start. Maybe you got to look at. Um, who are the leaders of the team, and, and, and can they establish the tone ultimately? That's what it comes down to, you know? But um, I think all options should be on the table for Darko. Like, they're basically losing games in the first half the majority of the time, so. And this is a team that should be playing desperate, right? Like, right off the bat, you're not good enough to take it easy. You can't buy into the fool's gold of those comeback wins against San Antonio mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, the Washington Wizards. Like, that's not going to get you, get you through a whole season. And so I think... They're too young at times, and they're too immature, uh, and it shows in the way that they start out these games. And so I think uh, someone has to, to your point, take on that leadership onus and really call out the team and be like, hey, we cannot start games like these. We're not good enough to do that. We're not, you know, a super elite team that can walk in and, you know, maybe take it easy for a couple quarters and then turn it up in the second half. So who is that guy, though? Because And and look, there are very few media traveling on this two-game, two-city, two-day trip. So I have no idea what the vibe was like in the locker room after. You know, we saw a couple of things trickle down from Darko, but we're, we're mostly in the dark on a back-to-back here on the road. So we don't know what the tone of that dressing room was like. I have a guess what it was like. But, Will, like, when you look at where this team is, there are... There aren't that many young guys for a team that talks a lot about development, right? Like, Scotty's in his third year, and that's a real thing. Grady's only 20. Everyone else has, like, been... Like, Precious and Malachi are in their fourth seasons. Mm-hmm. Jalen McDaniels on his third team? 
Dennis Schroeder and Jakob Pertl were brought in, those guys are steady veterans. Like, yeah. where the fact that there isn't that voice in the room, and I get it. it maybe a bench player can't speak up. Maybe Otto and Thad and Garrett Temple, it's just not heard because they're not, you know, they're not playing, and that's a, a different kind of leadership that that they're providing there. But who is this on to you, Will? Because, like, I think it kind of comes down to Pascal, OG, and Scotty because not only are they the three best players on the court and they've driven, you know, lineup-wise, they've driven the most successful stuff, but they're the only guys here that, you know, have probably enough of a voice given what they contribute and have been here more than a minute. Yeah, no, it's got to be Pascal or Scotty. That's, that's really it. And one of them has to take over the game. Ideally, both of them takes over the game. But that on-court leadership that you're speaking of, I think they have plenty of off-court leadership, okay? You got Garrett Temple. They you got, got half Thad the Young. players' union executive board yeah. on the bench. I, I'm not worried about that. And listen, like even to some extent, like I, I, the coaches obviously is like the structure of your off-court leadership. On-court leadership, you need your actual star talent to come in and take control of this game. And I just didn't feel like, you know, Pascal thought in the first quarter did a decent job getting into the paint, setting up guys, found Jakob for three layups. That's good, right? But is is that sort of leadership extended on the defensive end? Is he taking ownership on the defensive end? There's a couple of blowbys that he allowed. You know, Scotty started this game really slowly. Picked it up at certain moments. I think he had 10 in the second quarter. That was nice, but it was sporadic. And when it was uh, the Raptors bleeding points, it was largely Scotty with OG and that second unit. Take over that second unit, you know? And, and maybe we break it down in, in terms of like, okay, you know, got to take over the game entirely. Maybe Pascal gives the first crack with that first starting unit along with Dennis and Jakob. Then when the transition lineups come in, now it's Scotty's turn. And you know what? Listen, I, I want, I like that Scotty plays unselfish. I like that he shares it. But it's a context dependent. If you're sharing it with Precious, you're sharing it with Chris, you're sharing it with Grady Dick, I'm sorry. I, I, everybody in the Raptors universe wants Scotty to just take those shots. Well, here's the issue, though, is that's the lineup around him and Malachi Flynn. Like, when, when we're talking about those so transitional just, just units. Just have him score, then. Just have him score. I understand. But those minutes are really, like, we just saw a Pistons team where Kate Cunningham is trying to do that 36 minutes a game. Yeah, like, yeah. it's a, like, and this is the thing, is, like, when we're talking about persistent starting out issues like this, when it's seven of nine games in a row that you've dug huge holes, obviously the the blame and the solutions are going to be shared here, right? Like there's something to do with messaging as the end preparation as they come out of the room. There's something to do with the encore leadership. And then there's a big personnel component, which is that they just don't have very good bench players or, or the bench players don't fit. Like Chris Boucher, we know he's a good bench player over the years. Precious has shown it in flashes. Jalen McDaniels has shown it elsewhere. Those guys don't really fit together, <laughs> and they exacerbate some of the issues. Grady Dick can't knock down a three right now, um, you know, outside of garbage time. These are issues. So I guess, V, what what is your thought on – it sounds like a weird thing because, like, nobody on the bench has played particularly well with any consistency. Yeah. But do you look at a tweak to, if not the starting lineup, what those early rotation patterns look like? Because if you want Scotty to take over those parts, he might need more help than he's getting from the, the four that we see run out there. No, I think that's exactly it. And I think part of why Darko has been going with sort of the Scotty plus bench units is because he sort of sees that as the best way to maintain that 0.5, keep that continuity of the system. But I think at a certain point, you just have to recognize that it's not working and say, okay, I've got four really good players uh, that I really depend on. Jakob Pertl, obviously, we've seen the limited minutes. And so... Between that starting five, maybe it's two that need to come out early so that they can come back with the bench unit and offer a bit more support to each other. And so I think that's one thing I look at. Just coming back to the leadership standpoint, mm -hmm. um, I wonder a little bit where you came into this season talking so much about the vibes and being completely changed from last year. 
are there players who were a part of last year's group that are maybe afraid to be the first one to step on someone's toes? You know, and are they saying, I don't want to be that guy that, you know, makes things awkward. I don't want to be the first one to, to call someone out. You know, is that happening? I think, you know, Dennis Schroeder, whether, whether he's spoken on the show here, whether he's speaking in practice, he has said, you know, hey, we've got to uh, be able to be accountable and we've got to, you know, be able to talk to each other, communicate, be honest with each other. Uh, that's something that he appreciates about Darko. But now is the time to see that honesty. Right. And can you handle that? Because the reality is the, the numbers are there for everyone to see. The performance is there for everyone to see. Something has to change about these first halves. And so whether it's the rotations, again, getting Scotty more help with those second units or someone just being upfront about what's going on, probably both of those things need to happen. Yeah, and I'd imagine that, you know, being upfront about what's going on is something that's addressed in, you know, walkthroughs and after the game and stuff like that. But again, this is where we're kind of rolling blind right now, not only because they're on the road, but even when they're here, you know, the, the new tiered access system that's stuck around since the pandemic, you know, the three of us aren't in the room anymore, right? So we we can't really feel that out uh, to the same degree. Um, so that... Look, again, there are obviously there's shared stuff here. When it, when it's this bad, everyone is going to have a little bit in it. Um, when it comes to what those bench unit looks like, look like what the rotation patterns might be like. Will, what is your appetite to see Otto Porter back in the mix again? Because I know he's a little on the older end, and part of why they're running this bench group together is probably a thought like, well, hey, if Scotty is the guy, some of these pieces might still be around. It'd be good to get him these reps. It'll be good to build that chemistry, but. Like, Otto Porter and Chris Boucher are basically the same age. And I'm not suggesting Boucher come out, but, like, there's an inconsistency in who is a vet and who is a, a building piece. Um, would you want to see Otto in there more, even if it's at the expense of some minutes for a Precious or a Jalen? Here's what I don't understand. Um, we go back two weeks, and the Raptors are playing Dallas. The Raptors are playing San Antonio. And if you look at who's closing the game, it's Otto Porter. Otto Porter tying up Zach Collins for two jump balls late in that game that went to overtime. Um, you know, uh, Otto Porter on the floor for a lot of that Dallas game as well um, in, in big moments. Otto Porter playing that Milwaukee win where the Raptors played. So Raptors 4-2 and two when he plays, uh, excluding last night because he only played the garbage yeah. time. But they're 4-2 and two when he's in the lineup. So this is what I understand. Why did he only play garbage time yesterday? I don't, I don't really get it either. I thought also, for sure the second time the bench unit came in, yeah. it was going to be a different look. And also, if we are going to play Otto Porter... And we're only going to be we're going to be cautious in terms of playing him on not, you know, both ends of a back to back. Why did we just waste one of his games to play garbage time on the front end of a back to back, knowing that they're playing later today against Indiana? Otto Porter consistently comes in and does the right things. Is it a long term developmental play? No, absolutely not. It's the opposite. But it seems like the Raptors still want to be competitive, right? And I think honestly, in the years past, I've liked the combination of Chris and Precious. What? Uh, what they did under Nick Nurse because their roles were really, really strictly contained. You crash offensive rebound, uh, and then you you hustle like crazy on defense. Most likely we'll play you in a zone on defense as well to try to get you in the right positions, and then we're going to play you exclusively with like Fred-led lineups or Pascal-led lineups, and those guys are going to control most of the offense so they don't touch the ball. Basically, they're there to hustle, and they know exactly the role, and actually some lineups like that worked. Since then, especially when you put the ball in their hands to do .5, I'm sorry, but... Precious on a .5 offense. That play yesterday in the second quarter where he failed to hand off for two guys. I don't understand why Precious just can't hand the ball off first off. Second of all, he misses the two handoffs, turns around. He's like, all right, it's Precious a chew of time. Then he tucks the ball, puts his head down, literally charges into Mo Wagner, and then goes to the basket, gets blocked by Isaac, um, Jonathan Isaac, 
and the play's called charging in the first place. Because, again, that's not a move. That's not a good decision. He shouldn't have the ball. No, he's, he's going college football style, like treating the DHO <laughs> like a run-pass keeper Yo. and like he's a Cam Newton type who's just going to, okay, I'm gonna, I see a hole. I'm going to keep this one and go through the offensive line to the, to the basket. Like, I, I'm being silly, but, yeah, like, yeah. It, it does look like that sometimes. And, and I wish we had numbers on, you know, the number of DHO option keepers where he keeps it. And then a couple seconds tick off the clock before anything happens, yeah. waiting for another guy to come around and get that next handoff or putting it on the floor. And a lot of times he picks up the dribble too. And then you're just kind of standing there like this, waiting for something else to develop <laughs> off ball. Really and is, that's the new point five offense. It's yeah. just him yeah. doing it. Yeah. The 0.5 actually means the five thinks he's the point. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I think when you look at it, say, for example, if you compare to last season, we all said that, the Raptors are asking a lot out of these guys defensively and kind of putting them beyond their limits, right? And so now I feel like we're almost asking similar questions offensively, mm, right? Okay. And it's like, hey, do they, are they really capable of running this type of offense? And you look at the pieces in place, you look at the roster construction in terms of having enough shooters on the court at all times. I think it's presenting a lot of issues to overcome. And that's why we're seeing some of the bad decisions, right? If you look at the ceiling of like a 0.5 offense, mm. you think of that Spurs team from 2014, yep. right? And you think about the experience on that team, whether, you know, you go from Tim Duncan to Manu Ginobili to Tony Parker to Kawhi, yeah. like, like super capable, super high IQ, super experienced guys mm. uh, that you can kind of expect those outcomes from. And you have a very demanding coach in yeah. Craig Popovich. Right. And so if this is what they're trying to do long-term, there's absolutely going to be some ugliness within it. But mm. also, I think there, this is going to be a lot of hard truths learned in terms of who is actually capable of running this type of offense. Yeah. As, lo as long as the roster construction stays as is. Because that's obviously a major issue as well. Well, I mean, that's why I want to track how are the young guys in particular adapting to that, right? And in this case, it'd be like, I, I think I already know Scotty could do that, right? Um, so I'm going to exclude him in this. But can Grady play in that context? Can Precious play in that context? Can Malachi play in that context? Um, you know, I mean, first off, those those being your, like, go-to, like, prospects that you left on top of your head, a little tough. Well, he, this is what we're going to get into in the second segment yeah, here is we, that, we you know, V, when you say that, you know, you, you kind of alluded to there this friction between developmental and win now. And that's where we're going to talk about in the second segment is that you look at a team like the Magic, who's in a similar spot in, you know, the standings and the power rankings and things like that. And what the plan is and what the path is, whether they get there or not, looks a lot more clear. So we'll, we'll do that in the, the second half, but we'll continue. Yeah, the, the fit of these young guys, first of all, are they good enough to be... Yes. To consider yeah. that, like, like is Precious Achua going to reach a level of player where you're factoring him into future plans, and then you get to the fit component? Yeah, like, uh, like, I, I, what the ideal scenario would be, he gets more and more experience, you know, in this sort of um, offense, and then it really clicks and and he changes his whole game. Right now, he's so far from that, you know. Like Gary, for example, I didn't list Gary as one of the younger guys, but he's like literally younger than Malachi, so he should be in there, young guys too. I think some of these second unit guys, like they got to take responsibility for what they do as well. Gary checked in the game last night, and I wrote it down here. First play, he takes a mid-range contested pull-up with plenty of time on the clock, really heavily contested, misses it, no, no chance, right? Second time, he comes down the floor, decides to go all the way to the basket, 
and gets stuffed right at the rim by Goga Batadze, who was also the guy who contested his mid-range jumper. Did they not know that Goga Batadze is a shot blocker? That was the other thing that threw me off. It's like, why are you going up against him so <laughs> yeah. many times? Look, I can understand them being caught off no guard by... Him, yeah, <laughs> getting caught off guard by his ability to pick out cutters as a passer. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know he had that right. in his game to that level. But, man... All he, like the reason he's starting and yeah. the whole talking point was, well, yeah, he's a good rim protector. Yeah. And if we're out Wendell Carter Jr., like that's the most stable piece we can put in there. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know where the scouting report was <laughs> on Goku Pataze. Yeah, it was tough. They, they didn't respect him. But honestly, he almost got a five by five last night. Like yeah. he was that good. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. Like that's not 0.5 offense. That's not like, you know, he's in the wrong lineups. You're using the wrong plays. Like. That's just Gary's bad judgment. So, and, and this is the thing. We talked in preseason, you know, Gary had one game where he had a bunch of assists and he he was actually one of the guys who looked most comfortable in the new environment in the preseason. Right. And one of the stats I always come back to is, you know, assist rate relative to usage. So how, how often are you creating for teammates versus how often you're creating for yourself, given the touches that you get. Last year, Gary was at the very bottom of the league. That's exactly where he is again this year. It's actually gotten worse. He's in the first percentile in terms of how much do you create for others versus how much you use the ball for yourself. No, the it's, most assist he gave was to me on, on fashion. Yeah. <laughs> and and Sorry, like, that's, that's like never you, been a strength on, for him, but like, it's got like, no one can have yeah. that stat in this offensive uh -huh. environment. Yeah. Weirdly, Gary's like uh -huh. on off numbers. And the, like, when you look at the lineup combos, he's actually still one of the better drivers of good units here. Mm -hmm. Some of that is because he plays, he's the guy who comes in first to play with a lot of starters, but also just like they so desperately need spacing that yeah. even if he's not playing well, the presence of Gary helps a little bit. But yeah, the playmaking element has to, like this is year four of us saying this with Gary Trent in Toronto. It's It's got to improve. I think that's where when I watch him play on the court, I don't see someone who's embracing the change in system. Like generally okay. when I see him catch the ball, it's like, hey, this is how it's more of this is how I play. Yeah. And this is how I'm going to keep playing. And it's, you know, it's a little too much of just looking for his, which is what he's done in his entire career. And so I think that's the frustrating element was where it's like, hey, how do you get Gary to truly buy in mm -hmm. to this system and playing that type of offense? Um, and, you know, again, going back to it, you, you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because he has to play because the Raptors just don't have enough shooting. This yeah. is the thing. is like if you're going merit-based, if you're looking at the second quarter, the top of the second quarter as the isolated biggest problem, right? What's wrong with those units? Well, you still want Scotty getting some experience being the lead guy in units like that and, and Scotty plus bench. You know, if Scotty, there have been times where those units are good because Scotty is just so good some nights. But if you want to go merit-based in terms of who should be in and out there, well, there aren't exactly got like... You could say, oh, well, Boucher or Precious should have a night down. But Jalen McDaniels hasn't made the most with his minutes. Oh, Gary should have a night down. Grady Dick hasn't been able to knock down threes. Oh, Malachi should have a night down. You know, the defense has gotten better, but the offense still, you know, isn't where it needs to be. There's no other point guard on the roster. Like, this is, other than the auto thing, this is why we're probably going to end up hyper fixated on Otto's usage over the course of the season or until he's traded because he's the only one. You could really, like, make a strong like make a passionate case for that guy should get some minutes and try something different. Otherwise it kind of feels like they're just going to ride this out and try different combinations of the same few guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's on the front office. And again, well, that, this is a, the huge, the bigger problem is definitely the, what the front office has done in terms of stocking talent. So we'll get to that after this, uh, after our next, our next break. But I mean, I think again, like these guys just have to all individually, like take accountability for their own actions. Like, I'm looking at the notes again. I'm just like, you know, the funniest thing was in the second quarter. Darko having to call the timeout, down 12. 
Then two minutes later, call another timeout down 18 because they can't get the thing right. And they come out of it with, like, OG driving to the basket and getting blocked and getting stripped. Uh, you know, nobody, you know, getting back in transition over and over. Look, it's the same thing. And I think the frustrating thing, especially for fans, and I know this because, A, I'm a fan, and also, B, like, um, you know, this is just the lives that we all live is that we're, like, constantly online and we, we see all the reactions. The reason for this is there's just, it's, it's deja vu. It's the same thing over and over and over again. And so a typical loss to an Orlando team that's playing really in form is not necessarily the, the biggest surprise or even the biggest, like, detriment in the world. It's not like the Raptors didn't do anything well. They shot the three ball, actually, probably at their best rate all season at 50%. They've knocked down 14. Which is a hilarious thing to do in a game against the Magic. Like, the fact that <laughs> yeah, both of these yeah. teams shot the three ball in their bottom of the league in three-point shooting and it still didn't matter for the Raptors is, right. like, a little too silly. Yeah. But, it, like, we're tired of this. That's the thing. People are tired of yeah. seeing this and the same problems. We have the same discussions about the same thing. Like, okay. again, I feel absurd once again. Okay, let, let me ask you guys this then. And this this is related to this and, and their inconsistency, and it kind of gets back to the leadership point, I think. When Boston was here on Friday, we talked with Michael Grange about how, hey, after you guys got embarrassed in Boston and you didn't like what happened at the end of the game with the, the challenge late, you know, how you were going to come out in that game would tell us a little bit, a little something. They didn't win that game, but down OG, they played pretty well against maybe the best team in the Eastern Conference, maybe the best team in the league. Absolutely. They, they, they didn't win, but they answered it as much as you can for a, what's probably a 40-win team. If they come out tonight against a Pacers team that is also on the second night of a back-to-back, could be down Andrew Nembard and Aaron Neesmith. Uh, both of those guys are questionable for tonight. And they play that poorly on defense. V, this is a two-part question. One, what would that tell you about this group? And two, could the Pacers score 200 points? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't rule out the 200 after they just dropped 150-plus on the Hawks. Um, but, no, I think you have to expect a bounce back. I, I don't think you can have the type of performance that you just had against Orlando and then come out flat, just as flat, uh, against the Pacers. And, again, you know, in terms of just different challenges coming out the gate, mm-hmm. there was every reason to come out with intensity for last night because, again, you pretty much had your in-season tournament hopes on the line. You had to come out and you had to win that game. Mm-hmm. And look, these are all guys who could use the 500K. They're either young guys who haven't made their money yet or guys who are not making a lot of money. And I think everyone would like 500K. Like, there's there's some stuff on the line there. Yeah, and, it, you know, being How those young the fans, guys, they'd love man. to go Damn. to Vegas too. Will, will <laughs> yeah. we just sit here? and No, we're old. Like, we, it's the, it's the product is for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now you, the second us. week of December, you guys get to spend the time in Toronto instead of Vegas. Congrats. Exactly. No, and so... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. So I think, you know... One of the things that's maybe playing out here is, you know, the lack of intentionality, the lack of purpose on the offensive end. And we see how that kind of rubs off on the defensive end. And, you know, the other thing I look at is individually, OG Ananobi is attempting fewer shots this season than last season. How is that happening? How is that possible? Like, okay, sure, you want to have this 0.5 offense, but everywhere in the NBA, and this is over the course of history, you have a degree of hierarchy, right? And we've seen some course correction in terms of the usage of Pascal Siakam, but it's got to be there for OG Ananobi too because he is your most reliable three-point shooter. He is your best defender. So you need him out on the court as much as you can. And so he should be getting uh, more shots. I think he's someone that you possibly look at, you know, depending on who, you know, the best opposing player is uh, on the given night. If he can maybe come out early come back with a Scotty unit and, you know, maybe there's shots, more shots for him there. I think 
there's got to be more purpose to the offense. And I think once that kind of stabilizes, because, I mean, let's let's face it, Pascal looked listless for a little bit, and then all of a sudden, you know, you kind of prioritize him and you mm-hmm. get him going. Yeah, eight his, assists. His, his game looks a lot more complete now, right? And so I think you've got to find a way to do that for other guys too. And next in line after Scotty and uh, Pascal has got to be OG. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how they set him up though because I, I love to see Scotty and OG essentially just two-man game, those two guys. And Malachi, Precious, Chris, when you're out there with them, space, crash. That's it. And get back on D. That's it. Keep it real simple. Yeah. Yeah. Chris is at least hitting some of his threes lately. So there's that. I don't know yeah. how much any team's going to respect the spacing of those guys. Like Chris is at 43% right now, but yeah. you know, I don't there's a long track the record of him being. No, I, I think Chris has been fine. It's yeah. also like. Also, lumping him with Precious at this point, not fair. I'm sorry to Chris. Yeah. Precious is his own category. It's more now. that, like, if you have two of Boucher, Achua, McDaniels on the floor at the same time, you are introducing some of the same issues that aren't, yeah. you know, aren't any individual's fault, but they're just like, it's too much of the same weaknesses on the court at the same time, but you don't have other guys. And the tough thing for Darko is you have these players where you see their individual floors just like bottom out. And it can't yeah. be that low, yeah. Yeah. right? Like, think about the game Precious had against Detroit. How do you go from that to having the game that you did against Orlando, right? And what's the coach. difference between James Wiseman and Goga Bataze? <laughs> Damn, man. You're not even better than Goga James, James Wiseman talking about? down bad. Uh, yeah. But quarter, at the same time, yeah, as a coach, right, you're looking at that game and saying, okay, this is something for him to build yeah. off of. I'm, I'm looking at you to have a good run here. And then... And then he has that type of performance. So as a coach, I think that aspect is really tough, right? Yeah. And it's like you want to see players build off of good performances. And I think we've seen a bit too much up and down. All right. Well, let me leave you with this heading into the break. So in the second segment here, we're going to talk more about what this looks like big picture. Use the magic as a contrast point and kind of talk about some of the other teams in the East, where they are, you know, long-term or short-term and see, you know, should we, is the big picture, we were all unsure about it entering this year and, as the East kind of figures out its its pecking order here as we near the 20-game mark, it maybe looks uh, a little worse. So let me leave you with this. Uh, you mentioned some of the quarter-by-quarter quarter net ratings, V. The Raptors, when they're in low leverage, absolutely destroy teams. When they are down by tw- like 15 or more in the third quarter, they have a net rating of plus 31. <laughs> like they are, some of these have resulted in real comebacks, but they've also had a couple of the fake comebacks. And it's good that you have the spirit to come back in those games. But this is a thing last year where, you know, people kept pointing to their net rating last year and be like, they should be better than this. They should be better than this. And they should have been better than that. But when I dove into the numbers by the end of the year or even halfway through the year, that net rating was padded a lot by what happens when you're down 15, 20, 25. Something to think about during the break here is we're already seeing that in small samples. If you are a bad team in the first quarter, an awful team in the second quarter, and a mediocre team in the third quarter. Is the fourth quarter performance encouraging or does it actually tell you that, hey, who they are in the first three quarters is more of who they are right now? Uh, Think on that. We'll take a break. When we come back, Vivek Jacobs still with me and Will Liu on the Raptors show. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Ben Lou. Continue to be joined by co-host Blake Murphy and also Big V here in studio. 
We uh, once again, the Raptors are still in the principal's office. Okay, it's one of those uh, it's one of those aggressive parent teacher interviews right now. Uh, Man, they're they're headed for one of my patented in school suspensions, uh, (laughs) where they don't let you stay home, Uh but you are away from the the rest of the kids, the rest of the teams. Really? Yeah. Have you guys ever got suspended at school? By the way, that's what I'm talking about, man. Several times. What'd you get suspended for? Fighting, being a jerk. I don't know. Wow. Being a jerk. You're a little kid. uh... I don't know. There were just like, like I never knew. The elementary school I went to, there were just like lots of fights all the time. I don't, oh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's yeah. just like part of it. Like we'd play, we'd right. all be fine and then go play road hockey after school and then get in a bunch of fights there too. Yeah. It's just part of, uh, part of growing up where, I don't know, in my group of friends and neighborhood, I guess. I don't know. Mm. But yeah, you do that stuff in school, you get in trouble. Big V, what about, what about where you grew up? Where, where'd you go? To, where'd you go to school, by the way, man? Um, were you a Woodlands kid? Yeah, I went to Woodlands here, and then, but before that I was in Dubai. Um, oh, okay. All right. Never got suspended. Uh, you, got- do, you do seem like a really well-behaved person. Man. <laughs> Out of all three of us, you got the softest voice. Yeah, I mean. That's very soothing. Got a teacher suspended once, but we don't need to get into that. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. That was, every, that, was every, that was every middle schooler's dream, actually, was to, to, to have that happen. Um, yeah, okay, so just we we're on the discussion, and, and Blake, you had asked me uh, about the Raptors being strong in the fourth quarters. Um, I, Especially I w- in garbage time. Yeah, I would like to say that it's a good thing that Darko is finding the right sort of like mix or like adjustments. And by the end of the game, you you come up to a better optimal strategy for that kind of opponent. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I really don't. I think, A, it's a bit of a statistical quirk. But also, B, like, I don't know. I think when the opponent is usually leading this whole time, they feel a lot more comfortable. Um, And so... Yeah, I, I would love to give the Raptors credit on that one, but that's not what we're doing on this episode. What we are doing on this episode to continue the discussion. So we, we talked about the small picture uh, yesterday's game, and then we want to move on to the bigger picture. It's something that Grange tweeted about, but you know, Grange made the point that teams have rebuilt since the Raptors were great. And I would say the Raptors were last great in 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the pandemic ended the Raptors. <laughs> Yeah, the they number the Canada. number one yeah. victim of the the pandemic, the Toronto Raptors. Absolutely, who would think of the Toronto Raptors? Um, but no, seriously, since then, um, and the Raptors won or like the second overall record, I think first in the East that year, um, second overall best overall record, and obviously they, they lost in the second round, but a really really nice effort. I think since then, I want to ask you guys, how many teams have surpassed the Raptors in terms of what they have going on? Because we saw what Orlando did yesterday. And I wouldn't say Orlando's definitively ahead of the Raptors, but they're going to be in at least a year or two. And then we're going to see the Pacers tonight, who was another team in the same boat. And for additional context, the Raptors have finished 5th, 12th, 9th, and are now in 11th in the Eastern Conference the last yeah, four years. Yeah. So they have been, you know, whatever you whatever you think of that one year where they were 5th um, and, and gave the Sixers a, a good push in the playoffs yeah, or yeah. whatever, like th- that was fine. And we can kind of understand the trickle down of, buying into that when maybe you shouldn't have. Mm. Um, but otherwise, like three times in four years, you are in the play-in or worse. That's uh, It's a tough way to go. So, V, what do you think, man? Like, uh, obviously, the Magic put it on the Raptors yesterday. They have five lottery picks from the last three years, yeah. all of whom look to have a role. Well, I guess maybe not Jet Howard yet, but... Yeah, I mean, even beyond the Magic, you know, we mentioned the Pacers. You, you mm-hmm. can look at OKC as a team that, that is back mm-hmm. on track. Uh, you look at, you know, what the Sacramento Kings have done. Uh, in getting their franchise right. So that's another team that you can look at. So I think, you know, if I were to bring it back to the Raptors, I look at the Pacers, the Thunder, uh, and to an extent the, the Kings as what you can kind of mirror in the sense that 
the Pacers had a situation with DeMontis Sabonis where they had a very good player, an all-star, um, and they kind of needed to hit the reset. And it's like, hey, let's survey the landscape. Let's see what type of young talent we can get. And they moved him to Sacramento and got Tyrese Halliburton. And now, obviously, we see Tyrese Halliburton looking like a modern-day Steve Nash mm-hmm. uh, and just really sparking that offense, best offense in the league. And on the Kings side, you know, they said they needed someone more established, and they got DeMontis Sabonis, and that has worked out really well for them alongside De'Aaron Fox. Then and you, they could have gone either way. They could have made the same decision as, as the exactly. Kings, which was, no, we got to look ahead to De'Aaron Fox. But Indiana was like, no, let's look ahead a couple years. Sacramento was like, no, let's do this now. Exactly. And then I look at OKC, right? When they had to pivot off of Russell Westbrook and Paul George, I, specifically looking at Paul George, mm. like to be able to get a player like Shea Gilgis-Alexander, you know, so spiritually, if the Raptors were to look at, you know, taking a definitive pivot, then you're looking at Pascal Siakam mm-hmm. and you're saying, okay, if there is a deal to be made where you get your Shea Gilgis Alexander, where you get your Tyrese Halliburton, mm-hmm. where even if you go back to when the Pacers like first traded Paul George and got at the time a very good young player in Victor Oladipo, like that is spiritually the type of deal that you want to get done, right? And and then everything kind of makes sense, right? So even when we look at and criticize uh, Scotty Barnes playing with an all bench unit. When the expectations are uh, that you're not going to win, that you're not being super competitive, then you kind of can accept those minutes and say, yeah. okay, you know, we understand what the path is here. It's more long-term and, and you deal with it, mm-hmm. right? And so I think part of the frustration with seeing these lineups is because you're in this in-between where it's like, are we competing? Are we just going young? What are we doing? And they're kind of dipping uh, their feet in both waters and it's like, you got to pick a direction. And I think what's yeah, what's interesting about, sorry, well, the two examples that you gave is that these were not, yes, the, both those teams got some extra stuff. Like Buddy Heald was in that trade. The Thunder got extra picks because the Thunder have infinite picks and that's what they crave. But in neither of these cases did they acquire like a sure thing blue chip prospect. Shea was the 11th overall pick, was coming off a rookie year where he made all rookie second team. We have all been excited about Shea Nobody, I don't think at that point, was like, this guy's going to be a top five MVP candidate. Tyrese Halliburton was the 12th overall pick and was a year and a half to, again, being solid, but like not a a slam dunk. Hey, he's going to be a max contract guy. He's going to be a franchise guy. There's an element of this that was, yes, opportunistic with selling a piece at the right time and getting some long-term stuff, but also identifying the right guy who hasn't quite got there yet, but has that sort of upside. Exactly. So who is that guy out there right now then? Because I, I like the analogy that you made with the Pacers, right? And part of the, the Pacers moving on from Sabonis is they had positional overlap. Him and Miles Turner in the front court just wasn't a great fit, right? So you end up moving. It's not too dissimilar from, I suppose, if you want to look at Scotty and Pascal in that way. Although I do think Scotty and Pascal are a better fit. But regardless, even put that aside, um, who is that young guy out there that you'd be targeting if you're if you're calling around the league? Is, is that, you know, it, it, have we heard that name before? come up even in association with the Raptors in trade talks? Because we saw, I guess, uh, the Atlanta Hawks trade proposal. Yeah, I mean, I guess Jalen Johnson, it, maybe he's yeah. not going to get to that level. But he but wasn't in even terms that of... mix. It was A.J. Griffin and, and, right. and uh, Kobe Bufkin, neither of whom are even right. contributing or playing much. 
Yeah. Um, but no, I just mean like in terms of, hey, who's the the guy okay. that's going to All take right. a jump or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I guess this is the thing is like you don't know who that guy is until it happens and you develop them properly. Right. And um, that's where, you know, coming back to the scouting and the development that has been such a big strength of the Raptors over the years yeah. is they've got to try and hit that home run. Yeah. Right? Like I think Trey Murphy the third could be a guy like that if New Orleans was hungry for, for a deal or whatever. But, you know, then the fit gets weird and I don't know. There are, there are a couple guys out there who you could – sell yourself on but i don't know that they're concentrated on the teams that would want your pieces because e- even to an extent uh, you know just to throw in a- another example out there mm-hmm. you think about uh the nets right yep no one i th- i think everyone viewed macau bridges as a very nice three and d player mm-hmm. i don't think anyone viewed him the way he played those final you know 20 30 games the way he started out this season I don't think anyone viewed him as that type of player, right? And so that's where the scouting, hey, what are you seeing in a guy that maybe if he's given the right opportunity can be more, right? And and so those are the players. Again, you know, as, you know, Phoenix is like waiting and waiting and waiting to see if they can get a Kevin Durant, you know, what if you were the one calling for a Mikhail Bridges and saying, hey, okay, maybe Pascal Siakam is the guy for you, you know? and, you know, I know I'm pushing the whole Pascal Siakam thing. Mm-hmm. But, again, I think that's probably the biggest piece uh, in all of this in terms of picking a direction. At the same time, the other name that I will put out there is, is Jakob Pertl. Because mm-hmm. if it's if you look at why things don't fit, it's because Scotty Barnes' shooting has obviously look, looks like it's made a jump this season. Mm-hmm. But you still have two non-shooters in Pascal Siakam and Jakob Pertl. And so that really hurts the spacing on the floor. And so I think with the way Jacoperto's minutes have played out so far, he's not looking like the piece that you first acquired. And that was always going to be a risk on a team that was so bereft of spacing. And even if he was the guy you thought you were acquiring and the fit was, you still shouldn't have, in the place you're in, given up a first-round pick for him for the right to pay him four years, $78 million. Exactly. And again, you go back to the decision-making that went into that. You know, I think part of why some of us were patient about the Raptors not having a center is because from the outside, you were saying, okay, you know what? Maybe they're just making sure they, they make the absolute right choice, right? And, and so when you saw a roster with Pascal and Scotty, automatically your mind goes to, it has to be some type of spacing big, right? Mm-hmm. Not someone who is going to clog up the paint, not someone who can't even take an elbow jumper, let alone a three-point jumper, Right. And I think those problems are also being exposed now. Yeah. The other thing with it is like, and again, they knew Yach as a person and again, thought that maybe they wanted a look at if that was something that would take them over. The other thing is, is like I, I had thought all along that the part of the idea with building without a center or not overpaying for center was the belief, which is like pretty true around the league that you can find capable centers like pretty regularly, like uh, there are obviously the the scars still from the Aaron Baines, Alex Len year, yeah. but like Alex Len is still playing rotation minutes in the NBA. Like there are <laughs> he's fifty cents favorite player. Goga Batase was available for nothing for the Orlando yeah, yeah, Magic. Yeah, 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 sure. Um, like literally got waived mid season last year mm-hmm. and was just available. Mm-hmm. Like you can find these guys, or you should be able to find these guys. So giving a first and then a four year seventy eight million dollar deal that and will I'll kick this to you is I guess if they if we go down the scenario where they look at this and they say, look, teams are passing us. Teams have rebuilt quicker than us. We're not good enough to justify a win now. 
but we like Scotty and spare parts is not intriguing enough to like, like it's too long a teardown if you tear it all the way down. So you're going to trade Pascal for stuff that helps now, maybe Gary, whatever. Um, do you think you could get more for Jakob back for Jakob Pertle than like, Hey, he's his contract's like a neutral asset. We'll take it on and give you an expiring, but like, we're not willing to help you more. Do you think you could get equity back with, with Jakob or is it just kind of a reset button on that deal? I think the key question is, can you get back what you gave up? Which is a first I don't think so. in two seconds. Right. Okay. Um, I, I I, feel like, I think you probably could talk a team into it. You know, a spare team into it. Like, you, you, like let's say you go to OKC and you're like, you have, you have, you have Chet. You know, it's, it's a great season for you, but you guys definitely need a situational big. You have a million first-round picks. You can't give me just one? Like, you can at least have a conversation. Like, we're not going to pretend like Jakob is, like, not a good player. He is. No, he is. He's just not the right, necessarily, uh, the fit here. Um, but I, I think, to me, the bigger question is just, like, you know, when we eventually pivot to this point where it's like, okay, we're kind of done with this group. We've seen what this group has done. We've even changed coaches to see maybe the new system, new coach, different voices, different vibes. Does that change sort of the production? And if it doesn't fundamentally change, which right now it does not look like it's fundamentally changed, we changed point guards as well, also a big thing. Um then you kind of do have to pivot in the other direction. And I think, you know, what's concerning to me is like, okay, let's say you put aside some of the early season results and just say there's a certain class of team that's a, a definitively ahead of the Raptors. Obviously, Boston is definitively ahead. Milwaukee, with their talent, is definitively ahead. You know, Philadelphia is definitively ahead. I'd say Miami is definitively ahead of us as well. You got to give them the respect, right? But there's like a middle kind of class tier where it's like, okay, you know, some of them are on the way up. Some of them are already kind of ascending. And I just want to ask you, would you rather take Toronto's future over these teams, okay? Okay. Orlando, would you take Toronto's future over Orlando's future? No. Not right now. I would say... Because they have the better depth. Yeah, I would say no. Even if you think that Scotty Barnes has the highest upside of any of these pieces, and, and I think that's probably where I'd lean at this point versus Paolo and Franz, yeah. uh, they have tons of cap flexibility. They have, like you said, tw- like 12, if they get healthy, rotation caliber guys, and they're not out a first-round pick in a whole bunch of seconds. Yeah. Uh, who's our second best prospect? Grady, I guess, just because he's recently a lotto pick. Who's Orlando's second best prospect? Franz or Paolo? Yeah, no, conversation's over. Uh, next one, Indiana Pacers future or Toronto's future? Uh, yeah, I'd probably say Tyrese Halliburton is the best player. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would go Pacers. Yeah, I'm, I'm with that. And, yeah. and not only that, but like, again, they have pieces around them. They have that, and I know they have a Buddy Heald decision to make and... Miles Turner will eventually get a, a little older or whatever, but it's a front office that's done pretty well hitting on the marginal guys For sure. uh, as well. And another team that has a whole bunch of extra picks. If Greatest the second best prospect, they have Andrew Nemhard. They have Benedict Matherin. They have Benedict Matherin. <laughs> they got Jairus Walker, who they don't even play yet, but he was the seventh overall pick. I'll still keep talking myself into Jalen Smith as a bench big, even as he not performs as a bench big. They got a lot of guys. We'll see them tonight. And uh, again, yeah, lots of extra picks. Coming back to that conversation, it's like, hey, uh-huh. who are the young guys you maybe see potential in? You know, maybe Benedict Matherin is a guy. Maybe Shaden Sharp is a sure. guy. Yeah. You know, th- yeah. those are the type of guys that you look at and say, hey, what would they look like with a bigger role and, and a longer runway in terms of your future? Matherin is not a bad target, I, I suppose. I, honestly, I, if I had to make a Pascal trade, I would call Indiana. I mean, probably won't get done, but uh, that is life. Okay, Cleveland Cavaliers, better future than Toronto Raptors? You would have to say so. I mean, yeah. you look at the backcourt with Garland and Mitchell. You look at Evan Mobley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think you would have to lean that way. Yeah. 
I think I lean that way, but it's got to happen sooner than later because, again, they're still out a ton of picks from the Donovan Mitchell trade. So their ability to sustain it once guys hit that next contract, um, like once even even Evan Mobley hits that next contract. Mobley's going to have to make an offensive leap. Yeah, yeah, I think he's an otherworldly defender, and I watched a a big chunk of that game last night, and he was unbelievable defensively. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, right now they're situated where once he gets his next deal, you probably can't have – all of these guys yeah. uh, getting paid. A little TBD. I yeah. hear you. New York Knicks? I'd take the Raptors. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. They don't really have that many high chip prospects, but they do have a lot of picks that uh, apparently they can't offload. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks? This is uh, a tough one. Like, they've got a lot of, like, solid mid-tier assets. Mm. Um, like, they're trying to give, like, three quarters to for Pascal Siakam as a dollar. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so I probably lean Raptors here. Okay. Um, and, you, you know, to kind of bring it back a little bit, the other side of the equation that the Raptors have to evaluate is just flat out keeping Scotty happy, right? Okay. And so yeah. in terms of having competitive players on the roster, talented players on the roster, you have to evaluate the deals from that perspective where – you know, say, for example, if you look at a Dallas, right, and the way they kind of dug themselves a hole mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, Jalen Brunson leaving and kind of, hey, who's going to come in? And then they kind of just swing for the fences with the Kyrie trade, uh, which is looking okay right now. Yeah. Uh, but I do think there is that danger where you set your sights so far on the future, you know, then, you know, three years from now, maybe you get yourself into a situation where Scotty's looking at it and saying, hey, what, what am I doing here? Yeah. Yeah, well, listen, it's difficult. I didn't even ask you about over Brooklyn. Brooklyn is kind of like push for me as well. Um, Chicago, I think the Raptors are ahead of them, but yeah. they'll pivot. Although there could be a first mover advantage in if yeah. Chicago pulls the trigger first on, hey, DeMar's out, Zach's out. Uh, like they have no, like Patrick Williams isn't anywhere near the prospects Scotty right. is, but they have, there might be a first mover advantage to blowing up first. Yeah. Right. And Loki, Charlotte's prospects, much better than Toronto's prospects. But anyway, we are going to take another break. Say goodbye to Vivek Jacob. Thank you for coming in. And, uh, You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Wayne Lou. Continue joined by co-hosts Blake Murphy and... This NBA Insider is presented by Coors Light. Go from full time to game time. Coors Light, made to chill. Joining us once again is Mark Stein. Hey, Mark, appreciate you. Saw the uh, newsletter, and uh, to our great surprise, we, we saw our interview with Adam Silver prominently featured uh, in, in, in your Substack newsletter, which everyone should be subscribing to. Uh, but, yeah, thank you, man. Turns out you, you interview the commissioner. Everyone takes notice, huh? This is what happens. To my to my great surprise, what what a what a get for you guys. I mean, why I don't even know why you're talking to me if you can pull the commish. <laughs> no, come on, come on. Uh, you know, I, there's actually a couple questions that uh, we tried to get out of the commissioner that we we couldn't fully get. Um, so I, I'd love to hear uh, your side on things, especially on on, on subjects uh, like expansion, because um, you know, so Adam was very much like, look, we're 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 not focused on expansion right now. Um, and that is the official party line, literally from the, the head of the party itself. But, I mean, I, I think we, we all know that it, it's going to expand to 32 teams once the NBA figures out the new TV contract situation. They take care of all of that. 
Like, it's got to be 32, and it's going to be Seattle, and it's going to be Vegas, correct? I think that's the working assumption. I, I wrote, I oh. think it was kind of almost, almost a year ago that I wrote that, you know, the talk was already starting then. That, and this was before the league had a new collective bargaining agreement that the two things that had to happen was they had to get the new CBA in place and they had to get the new media rights deal in place. So they still have to do the media rights deal. And, you know, the media rights deal at this point, it runs through next season. So you would assume that that's going to happen at, you know, at some point here in the relatively near future. When that's done, then yes, then I think expansion becomes a much bigger discussion. And the only look, Vegas and Seattle are the first two teams that are first two cities that everyone cites, but you know, are those a hundred percent set in stone? Mm. I, you know, I don't know that they're a hundred percent set in stone. I mean, obviously there's tons of momentum for Seattle. And when you talk to people around the league, so many people want to see Seattle back. And I mean, it's crazy in Vegas that now they're going to have every sport, but the NBA and the NBA would be last. I don't think anybody thought that would be the case, but you know, so yeah, I mean, those are the, the strong favorites, but you know, I don't know that we can say 100% yes. And look, as a Canada, as a Canada lover, I would love if, if you know what Vancouver and Montreal want to jump in and, and some more Canadian cities. I think that would be great. But then it becomes a question, you know, do you, does the league really want to go to 34 teams or is it just 32? I mean, so I think there are still some unanswered questions here. Yeah, give me Montreal and Vancouver. Give me a WNBA team in Edmonton where the, the women's basketball history is very rich. Give, give us as much Canada as we can uh, as we can handle. Mark, when, when we talk about the, the expansion following the next TV deal, so if, if the TV deal expires after the 2024-2025 season, um, can you walk us through a little bit of why the league wants to go, okay, TV deal first, then expansion? Is this a matter of you know, you got to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the biggest revenue driver has to take priority? Or is there, you know, because it, it strikes me that if you had more teams, you could take more games as an offering to to these TV networks when you're doing these negotiations. Um, and, and, you know, a, a market like Seattle is, is pretty sizable. Um, is this just a matter of, like, it's literally the priority list, so that's the order they want to do it in? Or is there something else here to why you'd want the TV deal done first? I would say, and this is, you know, I, I cannot say that this turf is my ultimate area of expertise, but I've followed the league long enough to know that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suppose that the existing owners want to know how much, you know, how the revenue will be split in a new TV deal before expansion. So that's kind of factored in. Mm. So would the teams that would these new expansion teams do they get an automatic instant full slice of the new media rights deal? Or is that worked into their expansion fee? I mean, there are, there are business mechanics that would have to be worked out that are, you know, again, I'm putting my cards on the table here and saying, you know, I am not the foremost expert on this, this part of the NBA, but you know, that that's always, that's always been a question that if they, if they, if, if expansion was allowed tomorrow, would would the cities that buy into the NBA would they instantly get a full slice of the TV pie? Which naturally, existing teams, I'm guessing, would want to limit or have some sort of you know scale that you move in, you know, you move up the ladder on. So, 
Um, I think I think I think there is something to that line of thought and is is going to be part of the discussion here. But I mean, the reality is what you guys said is also true. I mean, it is a major priority to you know to see what the media rights deal is going to look like. Will there be new partners? How will streaming be worked into it? Because so many people continue to move away from traditional television. And I heard Mark Cuban did all the smoke. He did their pod with Matt Barnes and Steven Jackson the other day. And, you know, Mark Cuban said something interesting that, you know, this media rights deal, all the projections are pretty positive that the league is going to do well here. And, you know, certainly, you know, have a, have a significant increase base. You know, the last deal was 24 billion over nine years with ESPN and Turner. So we know the number is going to go up, but Cuban said on that podcast, he's worried about the deal after and what the NBA will be able to pull in that next deal. And again, it's just because the landscape is changing so much. Streaming is such a new factor. And this league in particular resonates so much more on social media probably than any other major sports league in the world. And that's been such a major challenge for the NBA. How do they monetize these platforms where, you know, they don't have the rights and their highlights are just getting distributed all over the place and they have little control over it. How can they monetize that? Yeah, that's a really interesting point by Mark because you are moving this round, you are moving from traditional to distributing platforms. But by the next time you have a TV negotiation kind of situation, which could be five, six, seven years down the line, is there another huge technological shift that actually pushes new competitors into this, therefore escalating the scale of uh, these TV contracts? But you know, moving to, to, to actual basketball, something that I, I know uh, you're much more familiar with. Um, so the Chicago Bulls. Always dicey, to, always, dice me to, always dicey to ask me to be your guy's business expert. I'm just <laughs> telling you right now. But, no, but oh, I, I think oh, that's oh, a, oh, that was actually a really oh, great oh, point. Oh, hopefully I did okay. Hopefully I did okay. Nah, you, you always do okay. Um, let's talk about Zach Levine. Let's talk about the Chicago Bulls. Um, you wrote uh, in your most recent, you know, substack that uh, unlikely to be traded before January um, if at all, um, there might be other pieces in Chicago worth uh, monitoring in Alex Caruso and Patrick Williams. So, yeah, let us know about the Chicago Bulls. It seems like, um, you know, whether they ultimately move a limit or not, that's difficult. He's the star player and he's got a huge contract, but he might not be the only one. Well, it really is the contract that makes him so challenging to move because he's only in year two of a five-year deal that's worth more than $200 million. So, you know, by definition, those contracts are difficult to trade. And until December 15th, 25% of the league is ineligible to be traded. So that's really where the complication comes and where the projection about January comes. It's, it's Caruso. I mean, every, Caruso is just – Alex Caruso is a player that if he were to be made available, you know, there would be a double-digit line of suitors trying to get him. And that's just the reality. I mean, two-way players – I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why – OG Ananobi has so many fans and why trade speculation about OG never goes away, even though, you know, the Raptors, you know, for the most part have, have been very unavailable. And, but, you know, a, 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 two, a standout two-way player is always going to generate interest. And, and so that's why, you know, Caruso's name keeps coming up, even though there's really nothing, no evidence in circulation that says that the Bulls are willing to move him and you know the, the Levine one is interesting I mean the, the Bulls 
not unlike your guys' Raptors, the Bulls are a really tough team to get a read on because, okay, I think it is it is pretty much around the league. I think it is now seen that, yes, the Bulls would be willing to trade Levine, and, yes, there's more willingness than ever before on Levine's side to seek a trade. But what else does that mean? Does that mean the Bulls are going full teardown? Would they also be willing to trade DeRozan, Vucevic, what happens to Caruso? And, and I don't think there's clarity on where Chicago stands on those fronts. And, you know, still we're just, we're just approaching the end of November here, so there's still time for that clarity to become evident. But I don't know that teams really have a great read yet on what direction Chicago is going. With uh, and uh, acknowledging that the Patrick Williams note is interesting just because of, you know, he's the one young guy the Bulls actually have. If they did, um, you know, hit, hit a button where they, they push the, the can down the line or whatever. I'm mixing a lot of metaphors here. Um, Patrick Williams, though, you, you had mentioned him in your piece. And again, acknowledging that the Bulls direction is hard to get a read on. Um, is that the kind of move where, you know, he's down to just five and a half points a game this year. He's coming off the bench for them now. His minutes are the lowest they've been in his career. Is that a case of you'd imagine some teams would want to see what they can get him, get a look at him ahead of restricted free agency since there is still that element of potential, but not really the production behind it yet? Yeah, I mean, I think his numbers sound alarm bells, you know, for any teams interested because, you know, it's, you know, I think I, you know, very underwhelming start is the way I put it. And I think that's being kind. I mean, he was a number four, former number four pick who was hoping for a huge contract extension with the Bulls. And obviously that didn't materialize, but he's still so early in his career and young enough that, that that he's going to generate curiosity from rival teams. I mean, you know, certainly were someone else if Chicago again, and is Chicago ready to part ways with him? You know, I, I can't tell you that definitively at this point, but if the bulls reach that point, are, are there going to be teams curious and interested and thinking, yes, we can be the team that gets this guy on the track that he was projected to be when drafted, uh, of course there would be. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it does fit what the Raptors like, for example, but I, I doubt there's actually a trade to be made between Chicago and Toronto for now. Um, want to focus a little bit on the MVP race. So, Stein, as, as, you know, for the longest time while I, when I've read your work, you know, I, I've always thought that, especially amongst um, – you know, the American reporters, you had a really good sense of like what was happening in basketball globally. I think that maybe some of that was you got, you had to cover Steve and, 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 and Dirk um, in Dallas. And, and that kind of helped you get your purview. But um, you, you wrote about it in your latest piece that the last five MVPs have obviously all been international guys. Um, you know, those being uh, Joel Embiid last year, then two years of Jokic, two years of uh, Giannis. And you look at it right now, and it's like guys like Shea and, and Luca, they're, they're right up there in terms of, you know, MVP candidates. And it's a little too early, as you wrote, too, to, to fully focus on it. But it is such an interesting conversation in terms of who will be the next American MVP. Because to me, there's not, aside from the guys who have already won it um, in LeBron, Steph, and KD, I don't know which of the young guys coming up in this generation for the USA is actually, you know, ahead of a Luca, ahead of a Shea, clear cut for me. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, it's to me, it's a really interesting 
sidelight. And, you know, even though, as you mentioned, I covered Dirk and Steve so closely, and both of them won regular season MVPs like Akeem Olajuwon before them. But even then, there was never, you ne- no one ever had to say the words, so and so is the best American player. Like, it just wasn't a thing. But because we've had this incredible run, five straight years, Giannis two years in a row, Jokic two years in a row, and now Embiid and Luka, I think everyone projects him as a future MVP. And SGA, I mean, he's all, he was all, first, all NBA first team last season. So by definition, he's in the mix. I mean, so that's five international players who on one hand, they don't really leave a lot of room for competition. Yeah. But then, yeah, I mean, Jason Tate, Boston's off to an amazing start, and Tatum, you know, statistically better than he's ever been. The drop-off from where, you know, what the Celtics look like when he's on the court and when he's off the court, I mean, there's a huge drop-off. I mean, statistically, I don't think Tatum could be doing any more than he is. So, I mean, he would probably be at the front of the line. And then, you know, you have Halliburton, what he's doing, the level that he's gone to if the Pacers – continue to win at the level they have and can get themselves, you know, if the, if, if the Pacers are a top four, five, six seed, I think Halliburton has at least forced himself into the conversation the way Tyrese Maxey started the season. Can Maxey keep his numbers and his production at that level? Uh, that's certainly a question, but Maxey's been sensational. And then, yeah, the, the, you look at the 30 something. Some things. I'm in LA. You know, I was there last night. LeBron scored his 39,000th career point. LeBron turns 39 in December. Steph Curry turns 36 in March. Durant just turned 35. And all three of them are playing still at an MVP level. And then it really just becomes, you know, how how good are their teams? And you know, I I do think the team success component will be a factor when when we get to serious. MVP discussion time. But yeah, I mean, I do think that's, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but it is, it is one of the interesting, you, you, you could do a whole show about where you think the MVP race is going to go. Yeah. Well, there's, there's great candidates too, which I think is, is great. Cause there's certain years where it's like pretty clear cut and there's no competition. Hey, um, Stein, we, we got to get you out, but last question. Uh, and this is mostly cause I'm so curious cause Steve Nash was one of my first like entries into basketball. I loved watching Steve. Um, do you got a great Steve Nash story to, to to leave us off on? Maybe a Steve and Dirk story to leave us off on? I mean, there's probably several that I'm I'm probably not at liberty to reveal yet. <laughs> oh, um, wow. You know, let's keep it. So let's keep it. Let's keep it. I mean, well, it just depends what you, I mean, there's a zillion stories. It depends. Yeah. It really depends what you want. But like, on, let, let, let's keep it to this topic. I mean, I remember vividly that even, you know, there was so much debate surrounding Steve when, he, you know, when he won both his MVPs and especially the second one. And, you know, Steve himself, when, when he won it the first time, he he said in a lot of ways, this was a best team teammate award, most impactful teammate. I mean, he, he won it because he, you know, he, he lifted the ceiling of that Phoenix team from 29 wins to 62 or whatever they won. I can't remember the, I think, I think it was the 62 and 20 season, but you'll have to look it up and confirm it for me. And so, I mean, and that, that's the thing with MVP. Everybody defines it differently. I don't vote anymore. 2016-17 was my last official vote. But for me, the way I always did it, it was best season. And not because 
you know, I started my my I started covering the league the year Jordan was in baseball. So my my first few years in the NBA was Jordan coming back for the you know the the, the second three peat. You could have give Jordan you could have given Jordan the MVP on opening night if we're going to make this best player. You could have done yeah. it for a decade. If we do that, what's the point of even having an MVP award? I mean, that's not what it's for to me. To me, it has always been who had the best season when you combine statistical prowess with all these nebulous factors that every different voter holds. And, you know, to me, and especially the first year, Nash was a clear-cut MVP mm-hmm. with how he transforms the Suns. But, you know, he was, you know, he was as, he was as hotly debated an MVP twice as you could be. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, I mean, having watched, I mean, first off, you were absolutely dead on the money. 29 wins to 62 wins. I'm sorry. You make a 33-win change on your team, you are It's a double thunder. Player. A double yeah, thunder it, from it, last it, year. Yeah. It wow. doesn't, it doesn't, to me, so, like, people would say, well, Mass can't guard anybody. Okay, fine. But, you know, <laughs> again, you said it. 29 to 62 wins, not everybody can do that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're so good offensively that you live with what happens at the other end. But, yeah. you know, again, that's, that's my scorecard. And a lot of other people don't see it that way. And, and the NBA loves it. Yeah. They would – because until the in-season tournament came along, this is what we talked about in November because that's all there was. Right. Like, they want us getting heated about MVP because – it's something that brings spice to the regular season, and that's what they're always worried about. How do we make the regular season more interesting? And that's why the league loves MVP debates. Yeah. Well, Mark, we appreciate you. Appreciate your wisdom. We will, we will get an off-court story from you. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah, I'll, I will. I'll have a better story. Don't worry. Yeah, next I'll, week. I'll, next week, I mean, we'll I, ask you again. I can. I can. I, I. I mean, I have. I have a zillion, but you know, I gotta. I gotta. I gotta spread these out. We're only in November. These guys are all retired. I think these stars can come out now, but. I uh, appreciate you, Mark. I'll call you next week. Uh, all right, guys. Be good. All right. That NBA Insider was presented by Coors Light. Go from full-time to game time. Coors Light. Made to chill. Yeah. So to give you context there for how big a leap that was, uh, the Oklahoma, like I said, it's a, it's a double thunder, basically. The Oklahoma City Thunder last year. And we talked about this in our, in our preseason over-unders about, you know, is it feasible for a team that just made a 16-win jump to take another one? That team did it twice at once. 33-win jump. That's a, It's more than double what the Thunder did last year where everyone yeah. was like, oh, my God, is this real? Shea's an MVP candidate. He's he's all first-team All-NBA. Even the Pacers, like, the Pacers are on pace to win 50 games. That would be a 15-win jump. Yeah. It feels yeah. huge. Less than half mm-hmm. of what we're talking that year. Yeah. And also, it's like, you had to be there, man. Like, I get it. Like, you look at the stats now, you're like, okay, the guy averaged, like, 15 points on, like, 11 assists or something like that. And you're like, all right. And then he wasn't like good on defense. But like, you had to be there. Like, I'm telling you, maybe this is just us growing up in Canada. My favorite thing to do as a kid, well, not my favorite thing. My favorite thing to watch on TV as a kid was I would turn on court surfing. I would turn on court cuts. And it would just be so many exciting passes and plays from Steve Nash with that Suns team to put them up like 20. They blew teams out. I think they, you know, talking about the first mover advantage, like they innovated basketball first in that way, and that's why they get so much credit, even though they didn't win the championship. But you had to watch it. It was so exciting. The rest of the league felt like they were playing an entirely different, almost an old-school kind of like dumbing down to the post or your usual kind of like stuff that they were running for like 10, 15 years. And then here comes Steve Nash with that group, and they were that exciting. 
And that's why they won that many games, but that's also why he won MVP. Because it was like he was the only guy who could drive that Ferrari, too. At least at that time. Since then, all the MVPs, well, not all, all the point guards have essentially copied elements of what Steve does into their game now. And pretty much every team in the league has re, well, maybe the Raptors not so much, but like <laughs> both teams in the league have really incorporated those pick and roll elements. Their offense, and it, it's crazy to imagine too. Like, obviously, Steve Nash was a pass first point guard, but even pass first point guards now in the modern NBA have to be able to put up 20 25 points, right? Yeah. Like, no one is just that. Steve Nash, over his first six seasons in Phoenix, did not shoot worse than 42.6 percent on threes, yeah. And he just didn't take a lot, he had a usage rate of 22.2 percent over yeah. those six years. He just was way more, way, way, way more willing to pass. He only took 12 field goal attempts a game, yeah. And only, like, fewer than four threes a game. In the modern NBA, if a player like Nash came along, um, you would have that person shooting minimum 10 threes a game. Mm. Like, Fred Van Vliet shoots 10 threes a game. Yeah, yeah. Fred Van Vliet, Steph Curry, Dame Lillard. Like, that's that's the type of shot profile that Steve Nash would have on top of all the passing. And really, in the modern NBA, he wouldn't be, you know, I don't think he'd be less effective because that extra shooting element, the fact that you're shooting more, the fact that you can now space the floor vertically up the floor much more than any defense was willing to concede then, um, man, he'd have even more space to make those passes within. Like, like it's kind of that that era of Suns team was, yes, first because of the seven seconds or less dynamic and Steve Nash and everything like that, but they really were like like pre-modern in a way that I think you could drop those teams in now and they'd be pretty, pretty okay. Like Marion would still be Sean Marion. Amare yeah. would be, you know, you'd like him to space a little bit more, mm-hmm. but still like as a rim running five would be incredible in a, yep. in a space and pace offense. Yeah. Well, and that was almost 20 years ago. Damn. That was almost 20 years ago. Wow. Damn. That's guess, how ahead of the game they were. By, by the way, in Toronto, you still see tons of Steve Nash jerseys, but on the top of Steve Nash, we're going to take a quick break because we're going to come back. And wow. Talk you're about giving it to Tyrese like that. eh? Quite possibly the modern day Steve Nash, um, who scores probably twice as much as Steve ever did. But anyway, we're going to take that break. I've been your host, Willie. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, William Liu. Uh, we will be joined momentarily by Caitlin Cooper, who, if people are not aware, um, genuinely, like, the smartest person on Raptors, or on Raptors Twitter, on basketball Twitter, period. Yeah. Uh, definitely the smartest person looking at the Indiana Pacers. Um, when you check out some of her work, it's, like, mind-blowing how detail-oriented it is. Yeah, it really does take you into, into, like, a coach's room, into a film session. Yeah, it's an absolute blessing. Um, so we, we will work to, to, to get Caitlin on the line shortly because, yeah, we, there's a lot to talk about with this Pacers team. I've already said it before. The Pacers are my League Pass, um, you know, guilty pleasure, mostly because they're always available on League Pass. You know, uh, who, who do I talk to at Sportsnet to pick up more Pacers games? Because, like... Yeah, I don't want to talk about that on air. <laughs> okay, yeah, Look, I, all, I, all I know is well, that the, to burn the, time. Sorry, Greg. the specific NBA games that uh-huh. Sportsnet has chosen to air on the Sportsnet channel of net, or network of channels is... A plus. It's the the best game and games every Absolutely. single night. Absolutely. Um, but no, seriously, the Pacers are like my league pass, like darling, and um, it's it's because I think after watching the Raptors every single game and, and looking at the film afterwards and thinking about them and making the show about them, I need like 
it's a total diff- opposite. Yeah. <laughs> from the Toronto Raptors. I, I tweeted this, but last night yeah. going to that game. So, you know, that game's fourth quarter was starting right as the Raptors game ended. So I went over there. I, I went back and watched the first, uh, the first three quarters of that one mm-hmm. this morning because Halliburton's third quarter was so incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but to go from the Raptors magic game to that game, yeah. it felt like an entirely different sport. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to bring in Caitlin Cooper. Um, Caitlin, thank you for joining us on the show. I know you talk a lot of Raptors anyway with Samson. Hey, by the way, we all also want to send our best wishes to Samson folk. Um, Blake, you, you did meet with Samson yesterday. It seems like he's okay. That's first and foremost. But uh, I, I know obviously Caitlin collaborates a lot with Samson too. So, Yeah, I don't know how to pivot off of that, but Samson's doing better. And uh, yeah, um, glad to hear he's, uh, he's feeling better. Caitlin, what's up? How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Excited to talk about this matchup for this particular game. I also know what it's like to watch the Pacers play the Magic and then go play the Atlanta Hawks. So I'm familiar. Mm. Yeah, big whiplash there too. I, I guess let let's start there at a high level. Let's like go. so, the Pacers have obviously been really really good this year. They're eight and five. That's a 50 win pace. That would be a 15 win jump. Um, yes, the Magic got in their way a little bit earlier this week. But even against a team like the Hawks in a game where it really didn't look like the Pacers had it, they're down by 13 at halftime. This offense is at such a level that it really does feel like they are never going to be out of a game. What has kind of, you know, let's let's start at a high level before we drill down to some of the specifics. What has made this Pacers offense literally the best offense of all time right now? I mean, I think it all just starts with Tyrese Halliburton, right? He, in my opinion, I like to refer to him as a counterculture. There's so many different nuances about his game that are very counter to the way that we think about basketball. He rejects more screens than anybody in the NBA other than Jalen Brunson, his shot form. I tweeted this last night. It reminds me a little bit of the robots that were at the (laughs) Olympics in Tokyo and that I think that it baits defenders into playing off of him and thinking that they have more time to contest than they actually do because he has a very quick release. He's obviously always doing the no-look passes, the jump passes that I'm very fond of that create passing windows. If he gets asked about the no-look pass, He'll be like, ah, it's for the vibes. In reality, it's like an uncertainty principle. He'll use a scissor step. He'll use a cut dribble. You never fully know exactly what he's going to be doing, and there's no waste to his game. The Pacers are getting more from him this year. He's being more deliberate, like in that third quarter last night, that, hey, this is my time. I'm going to score 26 points, and by the time we get to the fourth quarter, I'm not going to score anymore, but I'm going to be getting three-quarter court trapped, and now everything's going to be easier for my teammates. He plays a very inclusive way. He trusts his teammates, so I think he keys a lot of it, and they obviously just play at a very fast pace. It's hard to go for from watching the Pacers to watching another team because they're not just playing fast in terms of how many possessions they're getting. They play very fast into their half-court actions as well. Yeah, it's gonna be again, it's going to be very funny watching the Raptors play the Pacers. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 I, I struggle to think that they'll be playing the same sport tonight, but they will be. Um, no, of course, okay, so offensively, the Pacers are amazing. They're scoring 128 points per game, which, wow. Um what about the what about on defense? Because I, I was watching your film breakdown on it, and, and it seemed like the Pacers were trying a lot of things defensively in the game last night, where they won despite allowing 152 points in regulation. Um, they tried a lot of things on defense, but where are the Pacers at with defense? Because obviously they can definitely outscore anybody, but they they got to play just a, even if they got the average on defense, I would be so all in on this team. Oh, my tagline for them is they do not need to be good on defense. They do not even need to be mediocre on defense. They merely need to be bad. And right now it's mostly at a level of terrible. They mixed in a lot of trapping in the second half. They ended up not playing Miles Turner the entire fourth quarter. They put Isaiah Jackson out there for his ground coverage and that they could do a little bit more switching in certain spots, which did disrupt the rhythm enough for Atlanta so that the Pacers could still outscore them in a game where both teams scored over 150. But they've switched up the scheme a lot. So... 
I actually told, I messaged Blake this ahead of time and said that last year's Raptors offense with how much mismatching they did under Nick Nurse would actually be very effective against this particular Pacer defense because they guard the pick and roll two versus two. They very much want to limit threes, and that means they're not sending help very often. So if like where Pascal were to get a mismatch in the post, it's very rare for the Pacers to double. They've guarded 82 post-ups, I think, this season, and only four have seen a hard double. Giannis Antetokounmpo had... 42 points before they started hard trapping him and the play where Benedict Mathern was able to knock it away from him. So I'm going to be very curious to see if the Pacers are willing to adjust that. Sometimes they will. Like last night, they'll they'll go into the trapping if they have to at the three-quarter court mark, but that's not their preference. And that's created a lot of problems. They give up a ton of points in the paint. They give up a lot of rim frequency, even though they are limiting the threes. But, you know, if you're the Raptors, I think you're pretty okay if the opponent limits threes and you're getting you know, wide open lanes in the paint, especially if Scotty's running the pick and roll with his big body against what the Pacers point of attack defenders have been as well. Yeah, I guess my question that would flow from that is uh, if the Pacers are unwilling to give up threes and they're facing a team that is on paper and statistically one of the very worst three-point shooting teams in basketball, um, would you expect them to be a little more open to those, at least the threes at the top of the floor in order to prevent a Siakam or, or a Barnes from getting going tonight? Well, I have a point of reference from Sunday against the Magic. So when Paolo Bancaro was getting mismatches, when uh, Franz Wagner was getting drives up in those areas above the wing, they would bring some stunts. So they might have feigned help a little bit, but they never brought an actual double team to be spraying the ball out to the perimeter against the Magic. They really struggled with the Magic's length defensively in addition to how their offense got bogged down for really the first time this season. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. How, how did the Magic... Uh stop this offense because I feel like that's the, maybe the one of the only games this season where they, they haven't been able to just like overrun teams right so they had their their worst offensive rating of the season in the first half of that game and they also gave up 78 points to the Orlando Magic so I think that some of it was they had four days off and they were they were guarding themselves to a bit they okay. made some very slap sticky mistakes in that particular game but they also, I would say they were allowing themselves to be guarded by the idea of the Magic's length a little bit more than the reality. So there were times where the Magic weren't using hard or fly-by closeouts, and the Pacers weren't taking open threes, and then they were having some kamikaze drives. Also, Jalen Suggs really probably guarded Tyrese Halliburton better than anybody has this season. Mm. They were picking him up full court, face guarding him, making somebody else bring the ball up the floor. And something the Pacers really like to do in those situations is they will then use Tyrese as like a stack screener or to set a wedge screen for somebody to slide to the post. And Jalen was being really physical with him and preventing him from even setting those screens. Then once he leaked out, they deny him the ball back. So he's getting it back very late in the shot clock if he was at all. And his teammates weren't really, if the first action got covered, they weren't really getting to the next one. They did a lot better job of that against Atlanta's trapping, but also Atlanta's trapping was nowhere near on the level of what they were seeing against the Magic's defense on Sunday. So that's really kind of the formula for limiting him. If you can, you want to pick him up immediately because he's going to press off of makes and misses. He's going to bring the ball up really quickly, limit his decision-making, force Bruce Brown, force Andrew Nemhard, force somebody else to run the offense, then deny him the boomerang pass back. If they bring a screen, weak him to his left so that you can impact his floater, but even then sometimes he's really stopping and popping and going to his left. So he has quite a few counters for a lot of the coverages that they've seen so far this season. It's fascinating to look at his game log and be like, yeah, okay, against the Magic, he had 12 points, three assists. There must be one other game where he didn't play well and we can learn more from it. And there hasn't been. There's like, he once scored 16 points, but had 13 assists and they won by like 20. Uh, that's about the next worst game he's had. Uh, and of course, he only played 25 minutes in the Magic game because that, that game was pretty out of hand. Um, from what you've seen so far, 
this year, Caitlin. Um, so the Raptors do not have a Jalen Suggs type. Dennis Schroeder has been better than maybe we expected defensively. Um, Malachi Flynn has been okay off the bench, probably not good enough to, to get any of the Tyrese assignment. Um, it's going to be almost certainly OG Ananobi who sees a chunk yeah. of this against him because they have used him against any team's best uh, offensive player, regardless of position. How has Tyrese handled guys who are, you know, maybe not going to pick him up as much full court and get in the jersey, but who are physically stronger than him and can meet him at his spots to kind of deny space or, or deny ball with physicality? He hasn't seen a lot of those types of matchups. I'm very curious to see that because last year the Raptors did not really guard him with OG. Typically, Nick Nurse was putting OG on Buddy Heald so that they could take away some of those ghost screening actions that the Pacers love to get to with Buddy, and he was really blanketing him. So I haven't really seen that matchup to date to see how he's going to handle some of the physicality. There were a couple times and mismatches with some of Orlando's bigger defenders where it bothered him a little bit. So I'm curious to see how that's going to go and also... I kind of wonder, like, really the only other option that I can think of and kind of roll around in my head from having seen the Raptors play um, the Bucks when Giannis was out against Dame and all the different types of coverages they have because Scotty is getting some more of the point of attack minutes. If the Raptors wanted to get really weird and be like, let's put OG on Miles as almost a pre-switch. Mm. And when Miles goes and screens for Tyrese, then you're automatically getting OG on the ball because the Pacers are the most efficient team off of picks in the entire NBA. If you can take them out of the pick and roll, that does a lot, but they also use pretty much everybody as a screener. They're fourth in guard screens. So um, that also might have the effect of just limiting OG away from the action because they might just be like, hey, Miles, we're just going to space you to the corner. I think it pretty much has OG with what lineup they have out there. Yeah, that, that's something I think if, if Nick was still coaching against this matchup, you might see some of that because uh, that's how the Raptors used to always play the Sixers. Uh, what they would put like OG on James Harden and put Scotty on Embiid and at least try to neutralize and switch that pick and roll. Um, but yeah, to your point, they're, they're, it's not going to be easy. Like I, I do wonder, like if you're Jakob Pertl today, like what what are you what are you doing to prepare for this game? Because it's a good, I, I don't it's know a good if thing you got your double double in last night. I don't know if he's going to be like what place he's going to take up in this game. That's my concern. No, I, I mean, Turner can space him out and Isaiah Jackson, like, like Caleb mentioned, is, is rangy too, right? And even rangier defensively maybe. So, um, yeah, I don't know that it's a big hurdle game and boy, do the Raptors need precious to have a good game. Probably about the only thing they could do with Pirtle is depending upon what the Pacers do with the starting lineup because they made a starting lineup change last night. Mm -hmm. They didn't necessarily say they're committed to that. That was more matchup specific, although I do think that that is their best lineup. But if they went back to the original lineup and Obi Toppin was out there, you again could maybe cross match it and leave Pirtle there. So it's some of that not what was happening against Boston where he was getting hunted in space or maybe it's a precious Achua game where you're having to do a lot more switching. That's another option. Um, with respect to Obi Toppin, so yeah, he came out of the starting lineup. Yesterday, they made that switch of uh, Mathurin and Obi Toppin for uh, Neesmith and Heald. Neesmith's questionable tonight anyway, so we, we don't know for sure if we'll see him. Um, but Toppin seems to be fitting in pretty well. Uh, Knicks fans, I know, at least on Twitter, are kicking themselves a little bit uh, that he got away there. Uh, how has he fit? And, you know, what what's going on with his fit in this offense beyond just the highlight reel dunks? So last night was the kind of the first time he's really featured prominently in the closing lineup. And that's because both teams had played all of the centers off of the floor. <laughs> and he was the other front court partner out there with Neesmith. And that I felt was going to be a really good matchup for OG because Atlanta blitzes more picks than anybody. And their stances on the back line of that are kind of bizarre where they mirror their chest to the ball and they cannot see cutters behind them. They do not see flare screens and Obi's very active. So like when the Pacers played the Spurs, Wembenyama was guarding um, top end. So anytime, wherever it, the ball was, 
top and cut opposite so that they were removing uh, Wemby's size from being able to get in Tyrese's driving lanes. That was very effective for them. So it hasn't necessarily been the screen and roll stuff that I'm sure some Knicks fans thought would really pop where he would get to roll more now that he's finally playing with a big who can space out. He doesn't really hit the roll pocket very well in, in terms of pacing, but he does have some gravity there where sometimes he draws a tag because of what his vertical pop is. So Tyrese is just going to have that effect. There's two years of evidence now that, you know, the two point percentage of almost every big he plays with jumps by a pretty significant mark. So that's always helpful. But I think that the fit has been decent defensively. Neesmith just gives them more options. I mean, for the same things that I was just saying that you could do with Pirtle, I think a lot of times the Pacers defense looks at its best when they cross-match Neesmith onto a five. This is something they mm-hmm. did in the final game against the Raptors last year. They put Neesmith onto Pirtle, switched out to the ball on the ball screens with Fred, and put Miles on Pascal Siakam and had him sag off. Sometimes it's better to get Miles out of ball screens. That, in part, was a struggle for them last night, and he ended up not playing in the fourth quarter. So, Right. Um because we have you here, we, we also want to get your thoughts on the Raptors, who, who I know, obviously, um, you, you definitely keep in touch with this team um, and, and sort of what they're doing. Um, look, the Raptors on offense are, are nowhere close to Indiana on offense. Is there anything tactically that you might see in terms of, like, they could do a little bit more of this? Uh, or are there lineup changes? Like, you know, I think we're kind of open to all ideas of, of how the Raptors could improve their offense. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So there's kind of two realities of this offense, right? Sometimes they've mixed in some of last year where Pascal, like at the end of the game against the Wizards and the end of the game against Boston, he's getting some more of those mismatches and they're hunting that in a way. And then it's almost like they're playing Euro ball screen continuity. And sometimes when they're in that and maybe Scotty's facilitating up top and DHOs, I don't think that they always readily find or fully recognize where the advantages are going to be. So it's not just, I know some Raptors fans get very frustrated and think that, you know, oh, Pascal's not, they're not playing with intentionality. They're not setting the picks hard enough. They're not running through the actions hard enough. And I, I I feel that, although perhaps I'm somewhat tainted by watching the Pacers go through actions at warp speed. And I just assume everybody's going to do that, but like where exactly the advantages are, I don't think that they always find, but obviously they have a ton to overcome in terms of spacing in order to really make this work. I think that it would have been it's a very hard sell to convince me that they were going to be able to get into the top 25 20 range with what the current construction of the roster is i was expecting and hoping a little bit more for some of their transitional lineups Mm -hmm. like when you play scotty with the bench there's just not enough shooting like i I think those groups are shooting like 23 percent from three when they're out there with him (laughs) and maybe some of that's because grady's underperformed they're having to play like Boucher and Precious and Jalen McDaniels all at the same time. Like a lot of those groups just aren't making it work. But when he's out there with OG and a couple others, that makes it a little bit better. If you have Gary Trent, you can do more of the handoff stuff with Scotty. I think Scotty's made terrific strides. Like if I'm a Raptors fan, I'm at least I'm at least hanging my hat on that. Like oh, yeah. the fact I would have never predicted that he's shooting 40% on catch and shoot threes, over 50 on pull up twos, and like defenses are actually reacting to this. He's seeing more overs. I did podcast with Samson over the summer and I was like, I don't know how viable the pick and roll is with Scotty and Pirtle. And he's, he's made some real strides there. I don't know how often you could do that in a game. And I kind of understand why Darko does give a little bit more of the ball to Dennis. Although like, I don't know that I necessarily need a Dennis precious at you, a horn set at the end of the Boston game <laughs> when the way Pascal was playing and <laughs> Scotty's on the bench, but you know, yeah. that's for a topic for another day. Yeah. You did enjoy the 15 uh, foot runner floater contested uh for the game that was uh that's not that's not what anyone had drawn up no we don't like it today tomorrow when dennis is on the show though we it was the best play in the playbook you know it's it's funny because dennis actually had a good game that day but yeah that was not not it 
Um, okay, so Caitlin, uh, I guess we checked off a couple of the boxes there. Um, what are you most looking forward to tonight in terms of like the matchup game between a still pretty unknown coach tactically and Darko Rajakovic? Like we know the system he wants to install. We haven't seen a ton of kind of late game maneuvering and things like that. It's been pretty, you know, not by the book necessarily, but but pretty much what we expected. Um, you obviously know Carlisle and the Pacers uh, very well. At this point, what, what kind of matchup or, or adjustment thing are you most looking forward to tonight? I'm almost kind of just interested in what how the transition game plays out because the Raptors are a very good transition mm -hmm. defense and they're very they're loading up in transition and they're more efficient in transition this season despite the fact that they don't have the shooting. The Pacers have actually gotten a little less efficient in transition. I think they're less efficient than the Raptors are despite how fast they're playing and what they're getting into. So watching how the Raptors are going to slow that down because I think I mentioned that like Tyrese doesn't play with any waste. So like something fans can watch of him is like if an opponent makes a shot watch how he doesn't stare down the inbound passer. He always is taking a peek over his shoulder to see like where his buddy healed, where are the potential hit ahead passes? Where is the defense scheming? Or like, even when they played the bucks, he was like, I'm taking a peek over my shoulder. Oh, they're in zone. I'm going to motion for Aaron Neesmith to roll the ball out ahead of me. And now, even though we're not playing quote unquote fast, I've manipulated the shot clock because I'm not picking it up clear until we get down there. And I've already called the zone play. Like he he's never wasting any opportunities. Even when he doesn't have the ball, he's already he's he's just such a cerebral player. So I'm really interested to see how this much linked from the Raptors, given what they did against the Magic, what they do to limit Tyrese and transition and how the other guards for the Pacers stand up to handle that, especially because I don't I don't think Andrew Nemhard will be available tonight because mm -hmm. he's still dealing with a sore back. I haven't seen the update on that. Questionable yet. still. Which yeah. is a bummer. I really I really enjoy Andrew Nemhard, so <laughs> Andrew Nemhart also really enjoys playing against the Toronto Raptors. He had uh, one of his best games. Of the Indeed. Yeah, in, in Toronto last year as well in front of friends and family. Uh, last question. I, I mean, look, I've followed your work from afar, so I just want to ask you this question, maybe just for my own behalf, but what, what's your process for reviewing film? I watch the game live and then I immediately start rewatching it again. So like last night, these back-to-backs are a tough turnaround. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make a film breakdown video. I was yeah. still rewatching that and clipping stuff at almost 3 a.m. And then I was like, I got to set an alarm because I got to get up when the sun comes up in order to film that when there's going to be light in this room. But um, I think my main thing that when people ask that question is I'm always looking for abnormalities, good right. or bad. What's different? Why is this different? And for what reason? And how can I make that interesting? Maybe it's a story about jump passes. Maybe it's a story last night about why is Miles Turner no longer in this game? Or maybe, you know, it's something else unique. Like last night, Rick yelled a play that was called FIBA buddy. And I was very curious about that. So I started <laughs> watching, I started watching Bahamian uh, possessions from the national team last oh, summer man. to see if the Bahama team ran the same set or not. I haven't gotten through all those clips yet, but like just little details like that are something that I'm always going to pay attention to. Wow. That's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, thank you. Thank you for joining the show. And uh, yeah, I mean, we got to call you again when the Raptors play the Pacers next time. For sure. Thanks for having me on guys. Right. Caitlin Cooper. Seriously, that's what I said before yeah. bring her on. She's like the smartest person in basketball Twitter. It's not close. Yeah. 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 It's it's ridiculous. It's like I said, it's like being in the film room. It's like being in a coach's meeting. Um Yeah. It's if, like uh, so now the the one disappointing thing about that interview is her Tyrese Halliburton uh -huh. piece that like the big one that he noticed and even wore the shirt, jump passes yeah. are good now. I have one of those. You got one? But it's a tank top. Like, it's for the summer. It's like a oh. sleeveless. And I had thought, like, maybe I'll wear it in because uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's been like 1,000 degrees in here um, recently. But mm. the temperature's fixed in here now. I would be chilly in a tank top. And I think one sleeveless day on Halloween is probably all I get per uh, per semester here. Well, hey, listen, 
But jump passes are good now, is the takeaway. Yeah, the story there, for people who don't know, is uh, Caitlin wrote a whole story about that. Um, and Tyrese Halliburton not only responded to the story, read the story, but even ended up wearing the shirt that she made yeah. about it, which is pretty sick, honestly. But no, seriously, like, I think... Uh, I mean, that's that's another thing that, like, you know, really vouches for that players are really interested in her work as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no doubt, man. No doubt. I think everyone is. Um, By the way, I have one left over note uh, on the page. Actually, you know what? It's time now for Between the Lines, brought to you by Bet Rivers. Take a chance. Uh, I'll make it part of this. Raptors are plus three tonight. Mm. The over-under is up slightly to 241. Uh, the over-under on just the Pacers side is 121 and a half, um, which is, you know, what you'd expect with a 241. But just let that sink in for a second. The, the over-under, which is supposed to be like a 50-50 question, uh, is at 121 and a half for the Pacers tonight. That's how good this offense is. Uh, yesterday, actually, Pacers-Hawks, the over-under was set at 252.5. It was the highest over-under in almost 30 years, and they blew it away with 309 combined points uh, in regulation. In addition to all of that, again, they're the number one offense of all time right now. Yep. Two points per 100, better than the Kings who set the record last year. And get this, Will, they are... In the 83rd percentile or better, when they shoot out of a pick and roll, mm-hmm. shoot or pass out of a pick and roll with the ball handler, when the roll man gets the ball instead, on cuts and in isolation, 83rd percentage or better. There aren't very many plays left and play types left yeah. uh, if you're looking for weaknesses uh, beyond that. How are you feeling about this way? It's hard not to feel weird after last night, right? I'm telling you, this is these are my two teams that I watch. The most in the league, in the Toronto Raptors and the Indiana Pacers. Um, it's funny because when you mention it like that, it's it's basically like they got straight A's on the report card. Yeah. And, in the first and there's like one sh- B plus in like, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah, what like offensive rebounds or something. Like, like yeah. for the Raptors in the first half, that was very much, we've been called into the principal's office <laughs> because we're failing on all across the boards. Not so, even failing. You didn't show up for the exams. <laughs> well, that, hey, listen, that, that's, that's a big part of why a lot of people fail. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, listen, it's going to be a really, really fun matchup just to see the, the contrast in styles. I don't think the Raptors particularly match up well with the Pacers. Last year, uh, the, the Raptors had two games that are coming top of mind for me where they were up, they were comfortable. It was looking like Team Ford was, was beating Team Guard. And then all of a sudden, the fourth quarter comes around, and the Raptors run out of gas, and the Pacers just, like, pants the Raptors twice. Um, and I think there was another win also where Andrew Nemhard had a huge game in that one as well. So to me, I don't I don't like necessarily the way the Raptors match up, but there's such they come at basketball from like exact polar opposites. So it is hard to anticipate. Um the fact that they're even giving the Pacers the one twenty one like mm-hmm. uh plus mon- like uh, you know it's just to me it's like they've they average one hundred twenty eight. Yeah, they they've topped that one twenty one and a half, I think nine out of thirteen times. Yeah. So um it, it's gonna be difficult. I think one thing too with the Pacers is they had good depth. They got good options that they use. It might be a little similar than the Orlando game where it's like, oh, I'm not I'm not expecting Goga Bataze to come in here and contribute, but they do. And they have some of those guys to come in and step Isaiah in. Isaiah so. Jackson, he'll come in and make a, a defensive impact probably. Um, yeah. you know, Jalen Smith is a guy who I, I think I still believe in long term. He, he doesn't play much for them. Yeah. But when he does, you know, there's an impact there. Um, worth keeping an eye on. Andrew Nampard, questionable for yeah. tonight. Uh, Aaron Neesmith, questionable as well. But again, this is a Pacers team that has a, a little bit more depth than the Raptors. So second night of a back-to-back, even a little banged up. Uh, the Raptors have everyone except for Thad and, and Christian Coloco. Yeah, so I'm going to take 
I'm going to take the Pacers. That was Between the Lines, brought to you by Bet Rivers. Take a chance. Uh, one thing to watch out for here, as Caitlin kind of alluded to, the Pacers have the league's worst transition defense. They don't turn the ball over, but they're really bad on the defensive glass. So opportunity there for the, the Raptors to turn stops into points. It'll be an interesting matchup for sure. And uh, I am also endlessly curious as to what the FIBA buddy play is. But uh, I guess we'll keep having to read more for work. But anyway, that does it for us today. I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sports Night Radio Network. Make sure you find The Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. But please rate and review the show. Big thanks once again to Big V, Mark Stein, Caitlin Cooper, producer and co-host Alex Wong, who put himself in this rundown, but he was not here today. Blake Murphy, our board producer, Derek Brindale, Frank Baraska, David Says, Jeremy Manitad. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow.